What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. More people than ever are finding ways to build cool stuff on the internet and making a ton of money in the process. And on this show, I talk to these Indie Hackers to learn about the latest ideas, trends, and strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. If you've been enjoying the show, do me a favor and leave a quick rating for us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people discover the show as well. Today, I'm talking to David Shu. David is the founder of Retool which helps companies build internal tools way faster without having to code them from scratch. What's really cool about David's story in particular is just how ambitious he is. With the founding team, without hiring anybody, they were able to grow to about a million dollars a year in revenue pretty quickly, and they didn't stop there. They decided that their ambition was to change the way that people write code. They've raised a boatload of money to accomplish that mission, and I think they might have a shot at actually doing it. Today, Retool is just a few years old, and they're already doing tens of millions of dollars a year in revenue. A big part of David and I's discussion revolves around how they're able to grow so quickly, but also how do you decide to go big as an indie hacker? What does that process look like and what are the trade-offs involved? Enjoy the episode. David Chu, welcome to the Indie Hackers podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this. I was looking up our history over email to try to find out like when was the very first time that we spoke. And it was actually an email you sent me that I didn't respond to because at the time I thought it was automated, but now reading it, it seems... It seems like you almost typed it by hand. It was right after you launched Retool on Hacker News. I saw it and I was like, oh, this is super cool. Like You can build these internal tools way faster. And I had been building tons of internal tools for myself to just give me more leverage and like be more efficient running indie hackers. And so I was like, I should use this. So I signed up. And then I think two days later, you sent me an email. You're like, hey, it's Sunday night, but I'm you know working on Retool. And get any questions? I'm the CEO. This is what I'm here for. And I just like archived it <laughs> and didn't respond. Yeah, uh, that was, like you said, right after we had launched a Hacker News, I think. Yeah. yeah, at that point, Retool was tiny. I think it was just a few of us. We had worked on it for a little bit. I think this must have been in 2018. Yeah, August 2018, almost exactly two years ago. Yeah, um, so that was, I think, a year after we'd already gone through YC. And then we worked on Retool doing outbound sales and coding, basically, for a year until we finally launched it. Um, and I was so excited when I saw that you signed up uh, because, I mean, I had already been a fan of indie hackers for a while. This sort of whole indie hackers ethos. Was, I mean, we were living that at the time, right? We were just, you know, a few of us uh, coding away, selling away, and stuff like that. So I was really excited to see you signed up. I was kind of sad you didn't respond, but excited to see you signed up. <laughs> well, I was excited to sign up. And we eventually started talking uh, quite a lot because once I got into the tool, I think you had like an, an intercom widget or something for feedback in the bottom right. Mm-hmm. And it was early days. So there were just features that were missing at the time. And I was like, hey, you know, retool team, can you build this? And you were super responsive. You would like reply and be like, yeah. And often you would, within like the same day, add a new feature or push like a bug fix or something. And this just like happened for probably like the first couple months I was on Retool, where I would just like make all these suggestions and see all this stuff going on. And like, I know you were probably doing the same song and dance with a bunch of other early adopter customers too. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Not to sort of dive into too deeply, but I think sort of from a product development strategy perspective, a lot of people... uh really think that sort of being very reactive or sort of just building what customers want is, you know, oftentimes seen as a bad idea. But I think in the early days, it's by far the best way to find product market fit. Um, Because had we not built those things, you probably would not be using Retool today. Um, And uh, had we not built those things, all the other Firebase users would not be using Retool today either. And so I think in the early days, reactive product development, just building exactly what customers want, uh, allows you to hone in on product market fit very quickly. I think it's quite underrated. I interviewed John Collison probably around the same time, a year and a half, two years ago, at an Indie Hackers meetup in Dublin. And we got onto this topic of how do you, as you know, a prospective employee or maybe an investor, evaluate 
a startup? If you want to see, you know, is this going to turn into something or is it going to crash and burn? And I think the conclusion that we worked around to was the best thing you can do is look at where they are now, ask them about their goals and what they're working on, and then check back, you know, in a month or two and see how much they progressed with their product, how many more customers they found. You just kind of want to look at their progress. And I've seen this pattern over and over again as a, as a user of software. So 10 years ago, I was using Heroku, and I was pretty early to Heroku. So I was in their chat too, just asking them questions, making feature suggestions, and they were working super hard and like making all these changes based on things I was suggesting. And I was doing the same thing with you and Retool. Uh, I did the same <laughs> thing with the app we're using to record this podcast, Riverside, and the founders are super responsive. Yeah. They're uh, messaging me on Telegram, asking questions, making fixes all the time. And the consistent trend that I've noticed is actually... If instead of just using these products and making feature suggestions, for every one of them I had just invested, I probably would have made a ton of money by now because all of these companies have really good turnouts. <laughs> They're all like way bigger than they were when I was like in their chat making feature suggestions. So it's cool to see that you fit the same mold with Retool. Thanks, yeah. It's interesting that you and John were talking about this um, because I think it's a pretty common idea that sort of, you know, it's not the, uh, what is it, the y-intercept that matters, it's really the slope that matters. And everyone says that. Now, obviously, but, but I was like, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. You know, that's what people say. But I experienced it firsthand uh, during YC, which I know you also went through. But during YC, because everyone comes in you know, at a very different y-intercept, right? Some people come in with no idea. Some people come with an idea, but no code written. Some people come in with you know a million dollars in ARR or whatever else. And it's interesting of the sort of uh, sort of no matter where, if you look at you know the batch that we were in, sort of no matter where people came in. The biggest successes today, if you look at it, were the people who made the most progress rather than sort of you came in with 500K of revenue. And, you know, because I remember during uh, YC, I was so intimidated by them. I was like, wow, they have 500K of revenue. We have no revenue, no customers. How are we ever going to catch up? It's, it's ridiculous. And yet, I, I think progress is much more important. The other thing I think about is one half of the equation is, okay, you're making all this progress and you're being responsive to customers. But on the other hand, like, I was still using Retool despite like it missing things. I was still using Heroku despite it missing things. Like I was still using Riverside uh, despite there being like bugs and errors. I wonder what your opinion is on this. Like how much more important is it that you're building something in a market where customers love what you're doing or need what you're doing so much that they're willing to put up with a bunch of crap versus how responsive you are to all the crap that they're complaining about? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. When I use products now, Oftentimes, I sort of am most excited about the products that are semi-unpolished and I can sort of see the rough edges or I can see the bugs because then I almost feel as if the product was sort of more powerful or it's like built for me or, you know, something like that. Whereas yeah. when I see a really polished product, I almost feel that, oh, you know, there's probably knowledge improvement to, to be had at this point. It sounds like this product's already pretty mature or whatever else. So I'm almost more excited by the products that have rough edges. But to your point, I think, you know, exactly, I think the product market fit is much more important than how polished a product is, especially in the early days. Um, even today, I think Retool has a lot of rough edges and a lot of things we could be improving on. But it's you know fortunate that we have product market fit, and I found customers that that use it despite the bugs. It's a good litmus test, I think. So let's talk about uh, your market because I think the space that Retool is operating in is something that would be super insightful for most founders to just know more about, even if it just gives them like sort of general mm -hmm. business principles. But like specifically, like there's a lot of trends going on, a lot of opportunities for people to build in the space, and I think what you're doing is obviously incredible. So what is Retool, and how would you describe the the market that you're serving? Yeah, so. Retool, our goal is to be a fundamentally new way of building software. The idea is if you sort of look at you know, building software for the past 10, 20, even 30 years, 
the building itself actually hasn't changed very much, right? I mean, you and I are both engineers, right? So we uh, sit in front of a computer and we basically just write code. You know, the code itself has changed. Uh, maybe 20 years ago, we were writing Java. 10 years ago, we were writing JavaScript. You know, today, we're writing JavaScript. You know, it's you know, six now, I guess. But, but fundamentally, it's the same stuff, right? To get a computer to do things, you sort of write these tokens. Uh, you define functions, and you call functions, and you know things happen, right? The idea behind Retool is that, hey, uh, you know, for a large class of software, we're starting with internal software, specifically so internal tools, basically. Um, the idea is that for this very large class of software, maybe there could be a much higher level way of building this stuff. Instead of, let's say, working in writing JSX, you know, sort of working on every DOM node individually, what if you could sort of have a drag and drop interface where you could say, hey, I want a table, I want a button. So you drag on a table, drag on a button. You say, hey, this button should make a post request uh, and it should make it to this endpoint or something. Um, and so uh, you can sort of use a drag and drop interface to get to something like 50, 60% of the way. So it's you know, very fast, but then customize the sort of remaining 30-ish percent, let's say, by actually writing code. So uh, that's what Retool is sort of in a nutshell. It's kind of interesting because uh, when we first started, and when you think about Retool as like an abstract idea, you're basically giving developers a drag and drop way of building software. And that sounds sort of antithetical to what, what you know every developer wants, right? No, no developer wants to use a drag and drop sort of tool to build things. And yet people do actually use Retool. And I think part of it is, you know, to your point, uh, I think if you're able to find sort of a product market fit, or in our, in our case, I think developers really don't like building internal tools. Uh, I'd love to hear your story about how you started using Retool. Uh, but I think developers fundamentally really don't like building internal tools. And so they're like, oh, you know, there's a fast way of doing it. It is drag and drop, but hey, you know, it's actually much faster. And it's actually pretty flexible because I can write code. So let's give it a try and see what happens. Yeah, probably the trend most people will be familiar with today is no code which are all these tools that are trying to empower non-developers to build things that previously only developers could build. But Retool is very much targeted at developers, which I think is an interesting take. And like you're right, like theoretically just sitting down if you'd ask me, do you want to drop drag and drop interface to build stuff? I would say no, but like maybe that's because in my experience, almost all drag and drop stuff has tried to abstract away the idea that there's code here. And it's not as powerful because it doesn't cater to developers, it caters to non-developers. And I also think there's like another part of it where developers are just like skeptical <laughs> Uh, and a little bit defensive. <laughs> like nobody wants to hear that. Like, oh, your job is going to be taken away by like some automated tool. I was reading a thread on Hacker News the other day about no code, and I think the take and the actual post itself was like pretty reasonable. But of course, ninety nine percent of the comments were no code has no future. You can never replace developers, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we've got like you know maybe a little bit of a bias, <laughs> a little bit of an incentive to to not want no code stuff to work. Yeah, it's interesting. Two things. First of all, when we started Retool, there was no sort of low code or no code space. And so it's been kind of interesting sort of watching a space uh, sort of happen around you. I don't think we caused it in any way, but I think we certainly benefited in a bunch of ways. Uh, for example, there's uh, more enterprise interest, for example, low code, no code stuff today, as well as investor interest, which has been helpful um, for us. But secondly, I think I agree that I think most people talk about no code, but if you really think about it, I think low code is actually more interesting. And the reason is, uh, if you think about no code, it's basically, you know, you sort of can customize software without writing right. code at all. And that's pretty good for, you know, some use cases or maybe even sort of a, a good chunk of use cases. But fundamentally, a lot of the software that people want, they really want to be able to customize it, right? And it turns out that writing code is a pretty good way of getting a computer to do something. Probably a pretty good example, actually, is if you think about like a switch statement. Um, so a switch statement is pretty simple for you to write in code. You know, you say uh, switch this, case one, case two, case three, case four, whatever. It's pretty simple, right? But if you try to do it in the GUI, it's actually pretty hard. You, you know, you might want to start drawing sort of nodes. You might want to start wanting drawing edges. It gets pretty complicated, right? And so I think code is just a pretty good way of, of getting a computer to do something. 
And so I think the real opportunity really is sort of combining both approaches of no code, but also code. Uh, so mm. maybe, you know, use no code to get to something like 50, 60, 70% of what you want. But the last 30 or 40%, I do think you have to customize with code. I don't think code is going to go anywhere yeah. anytime soon. Probably bet that, you know, 20 years we're still writing code, I would bet. And so I think the combination is what is really powerful. And I think that is a sort of a very fertile ground. Uh, for exploration today. I love that you're building in the low-code space, but you're long on code. You think code is here to stay. And it almost seems like that would be the opposite. Like, why are you doing low-code tools if you think code's going to be around for a while? But like, it makes sense. You want, if people are going to keep coding, to make it easier and make them more productive. So you're in the low-code space, not the no-code space. And I think most people like think the opposite way. They focus more on like the trends and the fads. There's a famous Jeff Bezos quote where people are asking him, you know, what's going to be different in 10 years? And he's like, I don't care about what's going to be different. I care about what's going to be the same in 10 years. And if you're just focusing on these fads and you're always trying to sell shovels to people in the next gold rush, then when the gold rush ends or when the fad goes away, like you have nobody to sell shovels to. So I like your approach. I think it's much smarter. And if you can build on sort of a, an enduring trend, then it's much less risky. It's probably going to be around for a while. It's something you can bet your company on. And the trend has just more time to grow and get bigger as more and more people learn how to code. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. If you look at the major SaaS companies over the last maybe five, 10 years, I guess I'm thinking most about developer-facing ones. If you think about Stripe, Twilio, to some extent MongoDB, all yeah. these things are you know, infra-e, right? The goal is to you know it's to enable other businesses do more things, right? So like process payments, start companies, send text messages, telephony, all that kind of uh, fun stuff. So yeah, agreed. Yeah. I think we're lucky to uh, be selling shovels. Even in the consumer-facing world, I mean, you've got all these different creator economy platforms that are enabling people to build these businesses that they never would have. Yeah. Uh, and so you got people on Shopify and Etsy, you've got all these YouTubers, Twitch streamers, Substack authors, and now they're all running like these online businesses. And you can come in and provide lots of tools, shovels basically, that just give them more leverage so they can do what they're doing better. You can help them clip up their YouTube videos and promote them on social media. You can help them uh, make their TikTok videos, have all these cool special effects. You can you know, spruce up their Shopify store, whatever it is. And there's just a ton of ideas here that I think people should explore. Uh, and we'll get into this and how you're doing this in the low-code space. But before we do, I want to talk about the early days of Retool. Because you were able to get to something like seven figures a year in revenue with just the founding team. And then you decided to go big. So I want to talk about how you did that, how you grew so quickly, and also how you came up with the idea for Retool in the first place. Yeah. First of all, thanks. We were indie hackers. You know, we wanted to uh, start small and uh, see how far we could go. So when we first started Retool, we started it because we ourselves built a lot of internal tools. We'd actually previously started a different company. I was in the fintech space. It was two of us. It was really didn't didn't go anywhere. So it was really a failure. But during that period, we ourselves built a lot of internal tools. And you can imagine sort of, you know, the internal tools that Stripe might have, right? It's a lot of sort of uh, stuff around no uh, KYC laws, around AML laws, a lot of regulatory things, a lot of fraud things, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And when you build enough internal tools, I'm sure you you, uh, went through this yourself. When you build enough internal tools, you realize that all these tools, despite doing very different things, all kind of look the same and basically have the same building blocks. And so, you know, whether, uh, for example, for you guys at Indie Hackers, it's, let's say, managing the community, for example, uh, that tool is very different uh, conceptually from a tool that Stripe might have to, let's say, find risky merchants or whatever else. But fundamentally, the building blocks are basically the same. It's basically tables, buttons, forms, text inputs, dropdowns, stuff like that, right? 
And so the idea really came from the fact that, you know, I think we're all engineers. And, and so we were a little bit lazy and we were thinking to ourselves, hey, you know, maybe there could be a faster way of building all these internal front ends as opposed to just writing code from scratch every right. single time. And so that's where the idea of retool came from. And when we went through YC for probably around a year after YC, we didn't hire at all. I think part of it was having gone through YC yourself, you've probably seen this too. I think from the outside, YC companies seem so successful. And when you get into YC, you feel so great and so feel, feel so amazing. But in reality, uh, when you get into YC and then when you graduate YC, within six months, something like 20, 30% of the companies are dead uh, for a variety of reasons. And so for us, we were always extremely scared of death. Uh, we were always very worried uh, we'd be sort of one of the companies that graduated, raised the seed round, seemed really hot, whatever else, but then three months later, shut down. And so our genius strategy to, to not die was to not burn money. <laughs> and so uh, we just didn't spend any money. So we just didn't hire any money. And so that's really sort of where the uh, the, the fear of death is where uh, the motivation for not hiring came from. But I think that not hiring in the early days actually uh, has a lot of advantages later on, even if you do decide to raise money. Um, I think, A, it really builds uh, your muscle for a lot of things you have to do at the company. Um, for example, I know of many technical founders, for example, who uh, say, okay, I built a product, I'm just going to go hire some AEs to sell this thing for me. I think that very rarely works. In our case, we had no one to sell it, so we had to sell it ourselves. Uh, we had to do support ourselves, we had to do marketing ourselves, everything sort of, you know, we did ourselves, and we actually learned quite a bit uh, by doing that. I think, I'm trying to think, when, we, when you signed up, we were probably at maybe... 500 can revenue, something around there. And the team was still... Oh, wow. So you had a ton of revenue before you launched publicly. Yeah, yeah. I think people always say you can launch multiple times. I'm not sure I entirely agree with that. I think especially on Hacker News, there is fatigue if you launch five times and nothing happens. The sixth time, you know... You can certainly exhaust a channel for sure. Exactly. And in our case... I think for a developer tool, Hacker News is the place where you want to be. Possibly Product Hunt as well, but really, I think Hacker News. Um, and so for us, we wanted to launch once. I think at that point, we had maybe 20, maybe 30 customers together, you know, around four or five GK in revenue or something. And so once we got to 20, 30 customers, we ourselves were fairly confident that, you know, we were onto something interesting at least, because uh, probably not 20, 30 people were crazy. So Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of money per customer. $500,000 a year. 25 customers, it's not that many customers, that's like $20,000 a year per customer. That's way more than most indie hackers charge for their very first sort of beta products. And what's cool is like you weren't doing this with a, an enterprise sales team that you went out and hired. Like you were just the founders doing the sales yourself, the same way that every other indie hacker does sales, but just charging way more per person. So I'm going to dive into this, but not quite pricing yet. I want to talk about the idea because uh, you mentioned something that I love, which is that you were working on something something else. And you had to build all these internal tools, and then you realized like that was a much better idea. And I always suggest that people, you know, come up with ideas by starting something, anything, and in the course of running that business, like you'll probably have better ideas. So I'm sure you had lots of ideas while you were working on your other business. Why did Retool stand out among all of them as the most promising? First of all, I just want to agree with you on that. I think when you try to come up with startup ideas in a vacuum, it's actually really, really hard. And all the startup ideas you come up with 
are maybe plausible sounding, but probably don't actually have a market because you're trying to build for yourself and don't actually have an experience, right? And so it's funny because before starting Retool, we didn't have that many ideas really. But ever since starting Retool, we actually have many more ideas. But of course, you know, we're working on Retool and Retool is going for real, so we're completely <laughs> focused on it. But it is funny that by starting things, you actually get much more ideas, many more ideas. Um, so when we decided to start working on Retool, I think most of, we had a few other ideas too. I know a few friends who sort of write down 10 ideas on a whiteboard and they just uh, try to buy AdWords for all of them. And then they try to sort of optimize the uh, CPC and everything. And they try to calculate and then they build a landing page for everything. They build 10 landing pages uh, for all their 10 ideas. I think that strategy very rarely works because the signal that you get in the early days is so noisy. You know, you might get one sign up and you might feel sort of, you know, so excited and sort of on top of the world, but really that one sign up, you know, might not mean anything, right? And so in our case, we picked Retool primarily because we ourselves had the problem before. And so we, we thought we, we can't be that weird. Probably other people have a similar worldview set of problems, stuff like that as us. But I think also we just, maybe because we had the problem before, we were also highly convicted about Retool because, you know, we ourselves were like, this is something that we would certainly use. So I think Instead of doing, let's say, a lot of market sizing research, you know, Googling, let's say, internal tools, uh, market size or something like that, or, you know, trying to build landing pages and buying ads for them, I think conviction really is by far the best way to decide on a startup idea. I think it could go wrong, uh, to be clear, but but I think if it, you know, for the startups that went well, I think it really almost always was conviction. So if you look at companies like big ones today, the big ones companies today, like Airbnb, Stripe. Everybody sounds like a pretty stupid idea, right? <laughs> I think there is that the joke where I think when they were initially looking at market size, they calculated it based on how many airbeds there are or how many airbeds are being manufactured every year. <laughs> and if all airbeds eventually come out of Airbnb, how, how big is the market, right? And so I think a lot of the analysis is kind of stupid. It doesn't really get you anywhere or doesn't build up conviction or it should not be the reason you start a company. I'm big on conviction too. I think most companies die because the founders quit. But there's also this very like classic problem of being an overly optimistic founder where nobody and nothing can tell you that your idea is not a good one. You're just super convicted. And no matter what you run into, you just never pivot. You never change. And you just have this really terrible idea that like, you're just like beholden to for year after year. Uh, how do you avoid that? You know, How do you make sure that your conviction alone is something you can trust if you're not going to do all this like market sizing and idea validation and really just like, delving into things to make sure it's actually a good idea? You should look at the market sizing in general. In our case, I think we're quite fortunate where our goal is to change the way software is built is, is a pretty big market. There's something like 20 million developers every in the world. And 20 million times, let's say, you know, average 100K salary per developer, pretty big numbers. So, so I guess we didn't worry too much about that. Um, but I, I do agree with you. I think you should look at the market just, just to get an overall take. But that said, I do think there's almost always a path out of every small sounding market. Um, it's like the, the airbed thing, right? Like, you know, if you do the back of the calculation, the market for airbeds is probably not that big, especially airbed rentals on a daily basis, you know, sounds pretty small, right? Uh, and yet sort of the path out, and now Airbnb has a tremendously large uh, market opportunity and has captured a lot of it already. So I think there almost always are ways out as long as they're able to find early adopters. And I think the early adopters are mostly found via conviction or via your conviction that you can find them and you find people who are similar to you, hopefully if you're working on a problem that you yourself uh, had or would want solved. So I, I think market sizing is somewhat important, but I wouldn't overfocus on it because I think there's sort of a, a way out of it anyways. Mm. I do think it is important, despite having conviction, to gather feedback from the market because you will probably learn things. I think when most people give you feedback, it, it doesn't come from a 
place of they're not trying to sort of intentionally shit on you or they're, they're not evil right um, they're giving feedback mm-hmm. probably they're not lying to you probably like their intentions are pure basically when they give you feedback and so this actually happened to us where when we started retool well the first thing to answer your second question the first thing we did was just write code uh, and then after we built an MVP, we attempted to find people who might use, try to find customers, basically. And the first thing we did was conceptually retool is quite similar to something called FileMaker. It's a company that I think Apple bought maybe 20, 25 years ago, something around there. It's also conceptually somewhat similar to Microsoft Access. And so uh, our idea was, okay, you know, given that retool is similar to these two things, but, you know, substantially newer, you know, maybe more high performance, you know, better because of a lot of other reasons, we could try to find uh, people who use Access and FileMaker and see what they think of a retool. And so I remember I went onto LinkedIn, found a FileMaker user group, pretended to be a FileMaker developer. I think I changed my title to LinkedIn, actually, and then applied for membership in the group, got in, saw the 300 or so members, and then started cold emailing every single one of them saying, hey, I know you use FileMaker. You know, I saw you were in this group. I was also a FileMaker user back in the day. I would love to show you Retool, which is a slightly different spin of FileMaker and is you know better in these ways, worse in these ways. We'd love to get your feedback. And out of the 300 or so emails that we sent, I think we got maybe three replies. So the reply was kind of dismal, <laughs> given that, you know, I was targeting FileMaker developers, right? And of the three replies, I think all three of them told us Retool was a terrible idea and that they would never use it <laughs> and that we should probably go work on something else because it's such a bad idea. It's rough. And we should not waste their use of our lives uh, on this. And so I think it's important to have conviction, but, but also when you gather data, I don't think they were telling this to us to sort of veer us off course or you know, to, to uh, be evil or whatever else, right? I think they really believed it. You know, they really believed that they did not have any use for Retool. And so in that case, I think you should sort of take into account this new information. And in our case, what we found is actually the market is not FileMaker developers or Microsoft Access users. Rather, it is sort of software engineers who are building internal front ends with React, Vue, Angular, or whatever else. And we pivoted, quote unquote, uh, our market to that. And now it's gone, you know, uh, quite a bit better. <laughs> you know, now when we send emails, the sponsor is a little bit higher and uh, we don't have a 100% rejection rate anymore. And so I think our maybe two lessons. One is that you should have conviction, but you should also uh, be willing to change and be flexible uh, to change your conviction depending right. on sort of the information that you find. Because most of the information you get, I think, is comes from a, a good place. And they're not trying to mislead you. But secondly, I think, uh, it is an interesting thing of product market fit where I think when most people, at least we thought about it this way, we think about product market fit, you mostly think about how can I change my product to serve the market? And so, you know, most people pivot the product. They don't pivot their market, right? But in reality, uh, I think product market fit is two dials. Maybe there are more dimensions than just twisting it up now, but, you know, you can sort of twist your product dial, but you can also twist the market dial. And in our case, the product dial is working. You know, if you think about the product that we sell today compared to the product that we had three years ago, we have a lot more features, a lot more bells and whistles, but fundamentally it's the same thing. Uh, it's just the market has changed, and now this market is much more receptive to retool than the FileMaker or Microsoft mm. Access market that we thought uh, we should go after. I love that. So if you don't have the conviction, when you get the negative feedback, you're not going to stick with it. You're going to bail. And it turns out if your idea is pretty good, like maybe the timing is slightly earlier, maybe like you talked to the wrong customers, and so you need that conviction to push through that sort of early adversity, which in my experience is pretty common, even with ideas that tend to work. Like the very first podcast guest I had, episode number one was this guy, Jason. And he has this like really cool product where if you are making music, what you probably want to do is like market your music. And so there's all these different music blogs out there. And uh, musicians and producers will like submit their music to these blogs and be like, hey, will you like push my song to your audience? 
And he ran one of these big music blogs. And he eventually created like a SaaS app that allows you to like submit to all the different blogs for like a dollar a song or something. And he had to email like a thousand people in the first like four months. <laughs> and everyone was like, no, we're not going to use it. Like, this is so stupid. And, like, it eventually worked. And like almost all those naysayers are using it. But like, he just had the conviction to push through. And I've had like, even with any hackers, I emailed 140 people to get my first 10 interviews. And like the vast majority of the people I emailed were like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I would never share my like my revenue. Are you crazy? Uh, and now a lot of those people have been on indie hackers. Like my good friend Vincent Wu, like he rejected me like stone cold. Was like I would never do this. And he's been on the podcast twice and shares like all of his revenue numbers and all sorts of stuff. So it's pretty fascinating to see how important it is to kind of push through that early sort of negative feedback if you get it. Yeah, I think this is one of the big values of YC is hearing how uh, fucked startups were in the early days, or sort of how difficult it was in the early days, because then you're like, oh, actually, I could do that too. You know, it's not like sort of everything immediately went well from day zero, and you know, it's been amazing since then. Yeah. When you learn about sort of the early stories that you hear at YC, but even at YC Startup School, when you listen to the talks online, it is crazy uh, how much adversity uh, almost every startup experiences in the early days. And if you push through, you know, you may really, you become Stripe or whatever else, right? And it, it's really incredible. Also curious about like the shape of your growth in the early days, because you don't necessarily know you're on a really good trajectory, right? Were you growing linearly? Were you growing yeah, exponentially? Yeah. Like how obvious was it that you were really onto something? It was mostly linear. And for a while, that was actually very worrying. Because I think if you look at any exponential curve at the very beginning, it also kind of looks linear. So, you know, when you go from 1000 to 1500 in revenue, it's like, yeah, it's 50% growth, but it doesn't sound like that much, right? You know, it's $500 or something, right? And so for maybe the first six to nine months, I would say we were quite worried, actually, that the growth was too linear and that, you know, this was sort of never take off. And that was quite concerning to us. Part of why it was linear, I think, was because we never got, in the early days, we didn't get the flywheel really going. And so... If you think about how most sort of B2B companies start, at least in our case, we started by doing Outbound because uh, no one heard about Retool, right? You know, And so in order to get customers, we actually just had to go email people that we didn't know. Uh, also, our networks weren't, weren't that big, so we had to go email people that we didn't know. And uh, there was a lot of iteration on sort of the exact uh, outbound messaging. You know, we tried the FileMaker thing. That didn't go very well. <laughs> then we pivoted over into uh, building internal tools faster, et cetera. So, so we tried a few different things. Um, but in the early days, it really was, we sent outbound emails. We get some demos. Of the demos, we do the demo, see if they're interested, et cetera. Uh, a lot of people say no. Some people say yes. And the people that say yes, our product is probably not ready for them. And so we have to go and build all the features required to actually get them to use Retool. Uh, and then you repeat that, basically. It's also interesting because I think people's memories of the early days are oftentimes quite rosy. And I think if you talk to you know any most successful founders you guys have had on, on, on this podcast, it's easy to forget how much adversity there was in the early days. But I looked back to my, uh, my calendar, actually, because um, in my head, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, you know, sales was so easy back in the day. We just do demos, they would close, maybe 80% win rate, something like that, whatever, right? Um, when I look back at my calendar, I see sort of all the demos that I did three years ago. And I remember getting so excited about, you know, every one of these opportunities. And then when you look at how many of them actually closed, only maybe 5% or 10% of them actually closed. Um, <laughs> and so uh, it's funny that when I think back to it, when I look at the calendar, it's like, oh, you know, sales was so good back then, you know, it was so easy. But in reality, I, it was, you know, we would do 20 demos, maybe three out of the 20 would be somewhat positive. And then of those three, we'd lose two of them anyways, mm. and eventually close one. And so <laughs> there was a lot of cold outbounding in the early days. Uh, and because of that, it was quite linear because we never got word of mouth really going at the beginning. 
once we hit 23 right. customers and launched, I think word of mouth really started getting going, and now it's very exponential. Uh, but in the early mm. days, it was definitely linear. And uh, I think all startups are kind of that way. So, How important was it for you to get better at sales as a founder? Was it like a, a thing where you're just improving your skills, you're sending better cold emails, you're doing a better job demoing? Or was it more so that you were just learning about your market and picking you know, the right people to talk to and the right pitch to give? I think both, uh, which is, I think, why founder-led sales is so important. Uh, on this second point, I think you learn a lot doing sales. Um, you learn a lot more about your product doing sales than even building the product, I think. Uh, because you talk to customers, you see what their needs are, you see what they like, you see what they don't like. Uh, you mention particular features, their eyes light up. You mention other features, they don't care about them. And, and so there is, uh, you sort of really hone down on the messaging, how you talk about the product, what features you should be building, what your product roadmap should look like by talking to customers, not by building product, which is kind of counterintuitive. Was there like a turning point for you where you're like, oh, this is really resonating. We're building the right features, I'm saying the right things, and it just got easier? Eventually, yes. Uh, I think for a very long time, we thought we did not have product market fit. We thought that we just found 30 people, 50 people, 100 people, 1,000 people that liked Retool, but maybe they were all you know, kind of defective in their own way or something. Um, like maybe this Cortland guy, you know, he likes Retool, but he's kind of a weird guy. So, <laughs> so you know, it's, it's, it's going to be hard to find that many more Cortlands, right? Uh, surely. So for a very long time, I just didn't think we had product market fit. That said, I do think that it... It did appear that demos were resonating, but but then again, I mean, given sort of you know the fact that we did twenty demos, seventeen of them didn't go well. Yeah, maybe three resonated, but but really, I think we were focused on seventeen that didn't go well, <laughs> rather than the three that went well. So emotionally, it felt that we were not making that much progress, or progresses were quite slow. Even though of those three, if we close one, that's actually a huge win for a, a small company of a few people, right? So I think what's good about this is that um, you had a business model that allowed you to do this. For example, like I talked to a lot of people selling their apps for like you know ten, fifteen bucks a month, and if they spent all their time doing sales and they're closing like you know three out of twenty demos. They would end up with like 45 bucks a month and they would have to like go get a job because it just doesn't work. You, on the other hand, 20, 30 customers got you to 500 grand a year. And that's insane. Like you're obviously charging quite a lot of money. How did you decide what to charge, sort of land on like that high of a revenue point? Yeah, I think a lot of it is pushing boundaries. I think most people overestimate the irreversibility of pricing or quoting pricing specifically. And so I remember in our, maybe this is sale number one, two, three, something in the sort of first you know, few sales, um, we were uh, visiting the office of a potential customer. And I think they had used Retool. They liked it. And they were thinking about purchasing Retool. And so the founder of this company pulled me aside and said, okay, cool. So Retool thing sounds pretty interesting. How much is this going to cost us? And I remember thinking on the spot, like, you know, what is a ridiculous number that I can name? Uh, that, that We'd be really, really happy. Um, and so I think I said something along the lines of maybe 2K a month, maybe 2.5K a month or something, you know, some, some high number. To me, that was you know, an incredibly high number at that point in time. And uh, I remember the reaction. I think it was like silence for maybe a few seconds, maybe five or 10 seconds. And then it was, it was like, there's no way that could potentially work because, you know, look at the office that we have. It's a nice office. This office only costs us two, you know, 2.5, 3K a month. Uh, you know, we're not going to pay you, uh, you know, 2.5K a month for software. That's ridiculous, right? And so I think you should quote high prices because there's almost no downside to doing it. I mean, yeah, people are quite shocked uh, at the price, but you could always just cave and go down. In the early days, you can't. Because I think uh, when you get bigger, you definitely need pricing regularity and you, know, you can't give big discounts because eventually word always gets out and everything. So now retail pricing is very regular and very structured. But in the early days, 
if you quote 2.5K and they laugh at you or just walk away, you can come back to them and say, so what price would you do it at? If they say, let's say 50 bucks a month or 15 bucks a month, you can just say, how about 100? And they probably say yes. And then you sign, right? Yeah. And they also feel great about it because they feel like they got a great deal. Uh, and you feel great because you got a customer and you know you tested the price and you found the 2.5K is probably too high for this particular customer. So I think most price quotes are in the early days if you have a good relationship with the customer, very reversible. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you get bigger, I think this totally changes. But in the early days, when you have no customers, I would just quote progressively higher prices and see what they say uh, until people start saying no. And then when they say no, just go back down again and then start from there and start quoting higher prices again and see what happens. It's a good feedback loop too because the fact that you were able to do this is only possible because you're having like these like in person or at least on the phone sales conversations, one on one with an actual human being, or like they can say something and you can respond. Yes, never quote pricing over email. Never <laughs> do that <laughs> because they might just go away and you have no idea what the reaction was. Exactly. It's yeah, bad. there's no reaction. And even worse is just like not talking to anybody, building something new, putting up like a landing page and a pricing page, and then just launching a product hunt. And like, okay, well, of course you're going to be afraid to put like a high number because this is your launch or something and you don't want to waste it. So I, I think everyone should have like this sort of early phase where they're doing this talking to customers. And you can't really afford to have this phase where you're trying to grow one, two customers at a time unless you're charging a lot. So it's a kind of two phenomenon that play off of each other. Yeah, I think sales gets a bad rap for many technical founders. Um, maybe they view it as like below them or something else. But really, sales, I think, is the real work to be done uh, in starting early stage companies. I mean, you have to write the code and you know, build a product. But, but really, sales is sort of where the rubber meets the road. Uh, you can test a product with customers, see what they think, see what the messaging is. Test out pricing, understand the value prop, you know, all, all these things that make your startup successful. I think really you find out by doing sales in the early days. And so I really don't think this is something you can outsource. So another thing I, I see happen often with early stage founders is they get distracted and lose focus. And when you haven't found product market fit, you're not 100% sure like what's going to work, you know, what's not going to work. It's hard to follow a particular thread in a certain direction. So I want to put you on the spot here. Like, number one, like, how did you? get around that. But also, you mentioned earlier that like you did have ideas and things did cross your mind, you know, building retool. What are some ideas uh, that you think people should be building that you wish existed that you don't have to have time to build because you're building retool? On the second, briefly, the funny thing now is I'm not looking for startup ideas anymore, so I don't write them down. <laughs> so they kind of just pass through. It's like, that would be an interesting idea, huh? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just passes through. So I actually don't have any good advice now. I'll think about that a bit more. And, you know, I might send you an email. How about this? What do you pay for? What do you pay for at Retool? What tools do you use? What help do you get to the size that you're at right now? Like I can tell you I pay for Retool. I just looked at my, my invoice, <laughs> 250 bucks. I pay Upwork a decent amount of money. We spend a lot of time like finding contractors and stuff. And I wish there was better, more like vertically integrated Upwork platforms that would allow you to hire like very specific jobs because like it's kind of general and it's hard to find someone good. Like I want a place where I could just go hire great writers. That I agree with. So we use Upwork as well uh, sometimes for enriching emails uh, for doing outbound. And uh, it takes a lot of trial and error to find the right people. So much trial and error. And if there were a vetted platform, we would use that. Yeah. One maybe small thing that we would use is uh, right now we use Slack to manage all of our relationships with customers. We use shared Slack channels, basically. Um, and it's I think it provides quite a good experience if done properly for the customer because they can just Slack you and get a reply very quickly. At this point, we have a lot of Slack channels. I think hundreds, maybe thousands of sort of shared Slack channels. And so it's quite hard managing all of them and trying to sort of do a sort of support ticketing system. Right. Um, so that I think is an interesting idea. That said, I have had two friends start this and then pivot away from it. So maybe there are problems with the idea, but I think a priori, it sounds like an interesting idea and that's something that we would use. So Let's fast forward here a little bit because uh, you eventually 
kind of figured it out. And you eventually made like a pretty big decision to raise a ton of money. So, you know, recently you announced raising $50 million, which is an unfathomable number of dollars. That is uh, more dollars than there are seconds in the year. I cannot count to 50 million. If I tried to count to 50 million, uh, the pandemic would be over. There'd be a vaccine or it'll be very different because it would be like 2022 before I finished. And that's a huge decision to make as a founder, especially when you had such a sweet gig going where you were just making many hundreds of thousands of dollars a month as a tiny team. And you could have probably just kept doing that indefinitely and just lived the good life. And you had raised money beforehand. I think you said you raised a million dollars. How much of that had you spent? Oh, I think we spent very, very, maybe 100K, maybe 200K, some amount. Yeah, it was very little. Um, okay, so you're burning almost no cash. You're making money hand over fist. Why go big? Why raise a bunch of money from investors? So the goal for retool, I think the market for retool for us is quite potentially quite large. Um, our goal is to be the way software is built. And if we can be the way software is built, the market for that is phenomenally large. Um, it is unimaginable. It's much, much larger than 50 million. You know? uh, it'll take many years to count to sort of how many dollars that market is. So I think the fact that the market was very large, the fact that it's pretty wide open right now, the fact that the way that software engineers build software is literally by writing code, which seems so primitive in retrospect, was the reason we thought, hey, the opportunity is so big, we should really capitalize on the opportunity as quickly as possible. And that means raising money to have more resources. That said, I think a lot of the downsides, I'd love to maybe hear about some of the downsides you've heard. I think a lot of the downsides can be mitigated if uh, you are fairly uh, disciplined regarding your financial health. So in our case, we raised a seed round in October 2017, raised around a million dollars. In March of 20, maybe April, May, something like that of 2019, raised a Series A around about $24 million. And then a Series B uh, this month, around $50 million. Uh, and practically all of that money is still in the bank. And uh, I think what's interesting is if you are an indie hacker and are able to get to a point where you're profitable, it's actually surprisingly hard to ever become unprofitable. But B, it gives you incredible leverage on investors to raise very good uh, on very good terms and uh, very good rounds. So on point A, uh, if you think about, let's say, you know, let's say you're profitable, you're a few few people making a few hundred, you know, let's say seven hundred k in revenue or something. Uh, I think that's around about when we launched. I, I think. Um, if you're doing that way and your revenue is growing, let's say, 5x year on year, uh, let's say you grow from you know, 7, uh, 700k, 3.5, next year you grow to 15, whatever else, it's actually quite hard to grow a company 5x year on year. I mean, you know, the first year growing from, let's say, you know, a few people, you know, 3, 4, let's say to something like you know, 16, 20, 15, 20, that is manageable. But then growing the company again 5x from 20 people to around 100 people is actually quite difficult. It's very hard to keep up headcount growth with revenue growth. And so if you're lucky enough to have very fast revenue growth, it's actually just very hard to become unprofitable. It's actually hard to find places to spend money, really, besides headcount, right, for a SaaS company. And so you are sort of in this very good place where you're sort of always, you know, either close to profitability or profitable. Um, and it's very hard to get your way out of it. It's very hard to become that unprofitable, actually. And so you just set yourself up for success in the next, you know, five, even maybe even 10 years to mm. come. I think is really interesting. On the second point, I think when you are in that position, raising money becomes so easy uh, because you don't need money. You know, in our case, we raised our Series A. We could have just not raised. I mean, we had burned so little money uh, and we were making so much money and the team was so small uh, that for us to organically grow, I think when we raised a Series B on the Series A, I think we burned 
maybe 100K, maybe 500K, something around there. You know, really not much money out of the 25 million at that point, 24 million at that point. Yeah. We had one forty-eighth of it or something like that, right? And that, I think, is a tremendous leverage. And so if you're able to get the correct terms or, or very good terms, uh, then it's almost like free cash. I mean, it's true you're giving us some equity, but I actually do think if you find the right investors, they actually do it themselves add a lot of value. And so even though you sell 5% of the company, I think we sold maybe 5 6% of the Series B, the value that you get from the investor uh, easily makes up for the 5 or 6% that you sold. Your company is probably more likely to succeed or buy at least 5 or 6% because of the investor coming in, who actually was pretty helpful. Right. Okay, I've got a bunch of questions I want to ask you about this because typically don't have a lot of companies on the show that have raised a lot of money. And I think any hackers are just, it would be interesting for people to hear about like your mindset going through this. So first off, how do you feel about the fact that you have a lot of pressure on your shoulders now? You've got to be worth something close to a billion dollars just to make your investors whole. Yeah. For me, the pressure comes much more from customers or from the team than from the investors. Um, I think if you do it right, if you find customers, that is, and you start hiring a team and serve these customers, I think you eventually find that most of the pressure comes from that rather than from the investors. The investors sure want you to do well and, you know, maybe put some pressure on you to do well. Uh, but, you know, if retail ceased to exist, it would actually be much, much, much worse for the 40 or so people that work at Retool uh, and much, much, much worse for customers that depend on Retool. Like you depend on Retool, right? You know, you would have to rebuild all your internal tools, which I don't think you want to do. And I would feel much worse letting you down or letting our team down, letting, you know, an investor down like Sequoia has, I guess maybe they'll listen to this. They'll they have fine. a lot of money. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's fine. They'll do fine with or without the 50 million they gave us. Whereas uh, you actually might be quite sad if you actually had to go build internal tools from scratch again. But isn't it like a different kind of pressure where like I'm not as a customer putting pressure on you to be a multi-billion dollar decacorn, right? Like it doesn't matter to me that much if Retool gets humongous. And so you can kind of like, like the way you are right now, I'm very happy with Retool. Like you could almost rest on your laurels and like, I'm happy. I'm sure a lot of your employees are like, yeah, this is a great gig. Whereas investors might be like, no, no, like you need to be a hundred times bigger. So I'm curious, like why, why do you feel more pressure from customers when, you know, as a customer, I don't feel like I'm really putting that much pressure on you. Hmm. Yeah, I think the maybe this is a regional specific thing where for us, there really isn't any ceiling to how big retail can get. Uh, so to give you a sense, you know, we have one customer that every year spends $400 million building internal tools, which sounds utterly insane. But uh, they have, you know, around 125,000 employees. If you divide 400 million by, you know, an average software engineering salary, let's say 200K, that's actually only 2,000 software engineers. So having, you know, something like 1.5, you know, 1.7% of your company be software engineers is actually perfectly reasonable. So, so anyways, we have customers that spend, you know, insane globs of money on retail. And so for us, the risk has never been, uh, oh, you know, maybe retail won't get big enough. Maybe retail isn't a billion dollar company. Maybe it's not a tender, you know, hundred billion dollar company. That was always, you know, we'll figure that out later. Like if the market is so big that I'm not too worried about it. For me, I think the worry or the pressure has much more been, you know, what if we execute improperly? What if we let competitors catch up and kill us even? Um, and so for me, I think maybe going, this is the theme of my life, I guess, the fear of death is much more acute than the fear of not uh, living up to expectations. And so for you, I think you're right, you know, whether retail gets big or not, I think there's some argument to be made that retail gets big, we'll probably provide better support to you, we'll build better products, we'll probably be better, et cetera. But I think that the fear of death for me is much more acute where, you know, we can't give you retail anymore because retail doesn't exist. And that makes me, uh, that is much more pressure. 
on the team side, I think the team also would feel, I think a lot of people joined Retool. And partially, I think this is, you know, philosophically, you need to decide whether sort of you want to go big or not. If you do decide you want to go big, even if you have no investors, our employees have equity, they have a lot of equity, right? And so they themselves are joining for the promise of the equity becoming more valuable in the future. And so I would probably feel worse letting them down uh, than yeah. letting Sequoia down um, or, you know, any VC down, really. Because, I mean, first of all, I inter- interact with them more, but also they're contributing more to the cause and they're sort of, you know, providing more of their, you know, uh, time or of their effort, uh, of their life to retool. And so for me, that gives me substantially more pressure than uh, one partner at Sequoia who maybe can't buy a jet because retool was not $100 billion. <laughs> What about in terms of uh, work-life balance? Do you feel like uh, your life as the CEO of this 40-person company like right now today is sustainable? Or do you think like you're going to eventually make some changes, work a little bit less because right now you're burning the midnight oil? I think the, the nature of the work itself changes quite a bit. And it depends sort of whether you find it energizing or not. Um, so in the early days, when you start a company, uh, really you're, you know, you're pushing the rock forward, right? Or you're pushing the rock up the hill, probably. And if you don't push, the rock's going to fall down and crush you and crush you, you know? And so... That work, I think, oftentimes, I think it's the lack of redundancy that makes it tiring. Um, because if, if, you know, for three years, I, well, let me think, I think for maybe two years, the team was less than five people, I think. And so the lack of redundancy, I think, can get quite tiring or quite stressful because you can't go away, right? If you ever go away, you know, and the yeah. rock falls and the company is dead or, you know, something really bad happens. Um, mm-hmm. nowadays, I think, for me, but even for other people at Retool, uh, there's a lot more redundancy now, right? You know, I, I think everyone at Retool is incredibly important. But the good news is that, you know, Retool has built to some extent a machine that, you know, will continue executing. Uh, even if you take a day off or, you know, you're really feeling bad one day or, you know, want to take a day off, et cetera, stuff like that. So I think it's quite important for us still to work very hard. And I think we all still do. And I'm very proud of the team that, you know, uh, does this. Uh, but I think it's quite important to do so. But... I do think that there, because there's more redundancy, you know, you should go take vacations uh, now, for example. Uh, and I think everyone on the team should if they feel tired or burned out or whatever else. I mean, we are in the fortunate position where we can do that. And actually, part of that is with hiring other people or raising money. Um, because if you don't raise money, I think, as an indie hacker, if you're just doing it solo, it is very hard, actually, to, if the business is fully dependent on you, it's very hard for you to go do anything else. Whereas... If you do raise money and hire people and hire great people, which we've been fortunate to do, they can actually pick up some of the slack if, you know, you just, you know, one day right. you're feeling off or one week you're feeling off or something like that. Um, so if anything, that may be an argument for raising money, because I think of the people that I know who haven't raised money, I think they are actually more stressed, I think, than, than those who have raised money, if it goes well. I don't know. I've seen a pretty good split. I think the most stressed indie hackers seem to be the ones who like haven't found that product market fit with whatever they're building. And they're in this like, often people are in this like sort of straddling the door between like full-time job, working nights and weekends, trying to get this thing to work. Or like the even more stressed people quit their full-time jobs and are watching their bank accounts deplete and yet their company isn't generating revenue. But most of the indie hackers I've talked to, I could name dozens of people who've got like kind of a revenue generating machine and they like designed a job for themselves that works and they can afford to hire, seem to be in a pretty chill place. And I often see uh, high-growth startup founders who just seem stressed out. Like, not to pick on anyone, but like uh, Vlad Maglin was tweeting the other day about, you know, oh, the hardest part about my job is I have to explain to my wife why it's all, why it's all worth it. And I have seen an entire spectrum of people who've raised a ton of money and just feel super stressed. And maybe it has to do with, like, whether or not they're living up to various expectations or, like, you know, how they manage their own time. So I'm curious about what that looks like for you. For example... 
I often like do research on Twitter before I bring someone on the show. And I went to your account and I saw you were following me. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm like such a jerk. I'm not even following David. And I scrolled down like you don't have a single tweet. <laughs> so I immediately like, unfollowed you again. I was like, oh, I, I get it. Like, you're not spending your time on Twitter. How do you spend your days and how do you avoid some of this stress that I've seen other high growth founders going through? Well, first of all, you are a jerk for unfollowing me. So to follow me <laughs> you got to tweet uh, you know, something. <laughs> the past is no predictor of the future. Who, may, who knows what may happen? <laughs> but uh, that said, yeah, I think in the early days of a startup, I think you have to be fairly heads down and sort of fairly focused on the startup. And I think this is probably true even until maybe year, for me at least, I think maybe until year five, year 10, maybe year 15, like for a while, I think, actually. And I think part of it is sort of the philosophical choice you make when you start the start or, you know, when you find traction or whatever else, you know, are you going big or is this kind of just a, a uh, do you want to live a chill life and, uh, you know, make a million dollars a year from, from this and move to Hawaii or whatever else? Um, in our case, we chose, uh, because I think the opportunity was quite large, to really try and go big and see if we can be the way software is built. Mm -hmm. That, to me personally, is more exciting, but I think it's a personal choice. You know, I know of other friends who would much rather uh, just go move to Hawaii and you know make a million dollars a year, and life is very good in that way. But I think if you do make the choice of trying to uh, really go big, I don't fully like the go big thing because it, it feels it's almost too positive. It feels like you know I want to go small. Like, no one wants to say I want to go small, right? So I don't want to pass any value judgment really on sort of going big or going small. But let's say you know you're, you're raised VC, you really want to make a really large company that has a really big impact then I think it is very important for you to be very heads down and sort of very focused. I feel, this could be wrong, I feel of my friends who start startups that don't succeed in the early, let's say, two or three years, I feel like a lot of it comes down to focus. I could be wrong about that. The focus may be caused, the lack of focus may be caused by the fact that things are not going well, have not found product market fit or whatever else, but I do think focus is a tremendously large predictor of startup success. Again, there may not be causation, though. It may be correlated because if startup's going well, then you're more focused on it. It's hard to say. But I think it's at least correlated with how sort of how well things are going. What's the downside here? Like, let's say, you know, worst case scenario for Retool, a competitor does catch up to you and, and eat your lunch and no one's using Retool anymore, but you've raised all this money. You know, what does that look like to you? And also, have you mitigated that risk? Like, did you take money off the table when you raise money? Or do you think about like exit plans or like what could happen if the growth doesn't go the way that you want it to go? Yeah, so this is tremendously stressful. This, this may be one of the most stressful, I think it's actually maybe the most stressful thing, actually, about retail. Uh, I also bike a good amount. And uh, in biking, the thing that stresses me out the most is when I am ahead and I can hear someone trying to pass me. <laughs> and that is so stressful. Uh, catching up with someone, that's fine. If I, if I can't catch up, that's okay, whatever. You know, they started before me, whatever, right? But, but when someone started after me uh, and I started before them and they are catching up, Nothing gives me as much stress as that. And so for us, in our case today, we have every reason to win. If, if we don't win, it's going to be entirely because we fucked up. If you sort of look at the revenue, if you look at the number of customers, the logos that we have, the great investors we've raised from, et cetera, everything's going our way. The people who work at Rachel today, you know, everything's going our way. And so for us, if we don't make it big, we must have really fucked up somewhere. And so that, I think, I guess to sort of your previous question around sort of do VCs give that pressure? I guess not really. I mean, really, that comes from the team, from maybe me internally. I guess to me, I really feel like, you know, we, and I think there's a real possibility we could fuck up that, right? You know, there yeah. are tons of startups, as you know, that raise a billion dollar valuation and just disappear, basically. So that is really quite scary for us. In terms of mitigation, I mean, it's kind of like cycling, right? You know, if someone's catching up to you, really. The only thing you can do if someone's trying to catch up to you is bike faster. 
And that really is the only strategy is faster. I think I read something actually about, I might be making this up. I might've just like dreamt this, but I'm pretty sure I read this. Or like, there was a scandal in the cycling community where bikers would like split the winnings kind of. And they would say, oh, you know, like I'm going to come in number one this time. You can come in number one the next time. Uh, Cause I just really don't want to have to pedal that hard <laughs> at the end of this race. <laughs> and like, I don't know what the analog would be for founders. Like I'm pretty sure there aren't startups who are doing this, but like you can take money off the table. I have a friend who raised $20 million and took like, a, like I think three or $4 million off the table. So he's like, okay, well, if this doesn't work out, at least like I'm doing fine. And I feel much more comfortable going big. So like there are things you can do where like, you know, maybe uh, if you don't pedal fast enough and you lose, you have kind of a softer landing. How do you think about that as someone who's raised money? I think to some extent, the pressure is good. When I check my Strava, and when I sort of look at, you know, in what cases wattage is very high when I'm cycling, it's actually when people are behind me. Uh, that sort of is like the most motivating thing for me, actually. Um, so to yeah. some, I don't know if this is actually a legitimate... I don't know. You don't want. Yeah. You don't want a parachute. Yeah, you don't I don't want, know if this like, is a, a good financial decision. Right? <laughs> but, but I do think <laughs> these sort of uh, competitors chomping at you, at your ankles when you're biking, I think does actually make yeah. you execute faster or pedal faster. So I think to some extent it's a good thing. I'm trying to think if... I mean, there are other companies I've seen too, like for example, Zapier. Pretty sure they just like stopped raising money. And it's not like, a, okay, we're, we're like, we're failing. We should stop raising money. But it's kind of like, a, oh, like we're fine here. We don't need, I guess, like on the sort of risk reward balance, like found like a place on that curve where they were fine. And, you know, maybe there's like for a, a significantly profitable company like Retool where you're like, you're not like an Uber or like a Facebook where you're like, you know, selling rides at a loss. So you're, you know, spending a ton of money. Like you theoretically could be just fine if all the investors were like, you know, give us our money back tomorrow. Yeah, so I think that also makes it a lot easier because I agree, if you start a consumer company, you may be unprofitable for a very long time and you have no idea where it's going to go. Right? It could be huge or it could be not, right? Um, whereas with the SaaS company, and I think most companies in the hacker start, uh, it's quite stable, right? If you sort of look at revenue growth over time, if you look at churn, it's very low for us. It's in fact net negative. So on average, people sort of spend more than they actually churn. Uh, so that makes it quite predictable. That's it. All the Zapier thing. So I think I slightly disagree there because... If you look at Zapier's competitors, I think I think there's like 10 or something now, right? There's like one called Trade.io. There's another one. I don't remember the name of these, but... but Integramat. Exactly, yeah, Integramat. There's a few others too. Um, some of them are actually getting pretty big, actually. And so for me, again, I don't, I don't know the Zapier founders, and so I don't know their motivations or whatever else. But for me, maybe I'm quite competitive. I, I guess... You know, it's kind of like cycling. I, you know, I, I always want to be number one. And if I'm not number one, I'm very, very, very unhappy about that. Um, so for me, I would almost try to get every advantage possible in order to be number one without doping, obviously, in cycling. But, but you know, raising money is, you know, a sort of perfectly fair advantage, right? You, you know, you sell some percentage of your company in exchange for great people helping you, uh, but also a lot of resources, which with you can scale. So, for example, in the Series B, we were lucky enough to get uh, a guy named Carl Essenbach um, from Sequoia uh, join as a board observer. And he's on the boards of Snowflake, Zoom, uh, UiPath, Palto Networks, Workday, etc. And having him on our board has tremendously helped from a go-to-market perspective because Zoom and Snowflake are incredible SaaS companies. And this is the advice that, frankly, I don't think we could have gotten had we not raised money from Sequoia. So uh, I, I think you can sort of view fundraising almost as a way of getting an advantage. And I, I do feel like Zapier, to some extent, mm. is losing their advantage. Again, 
maybe the goals are different. I don't want to pass any value judgment on that. But if I were in their position, I would probably raise money uh, in order to stamp out all these all these competitors and declare uh, Zapier the winner. Yeah. So let's talk about how big Retool can get and why it can get so big. You mentioned earlier that you know you hadn't really unlocked the key to word of mouth growth yet. When you had 20, 30 customers, you thought, like, maybe these are just weirdos and like, you know, we're just pushing this rock uphill and we're doing a good job pushing the rock, but like it's not going to go on its own. Whereas nowadays, I, I assume like the implication of what you're saying is like you do have word of mouth growth for retool. Is that true? It is. Yeah, for a long time it was worrying to us. I think it's just the word of mouth takes a surprising amount of time to get going. I remember asking multiple other people about this in the early days. And it's interesting how uh, people's memories are all quite rosy. So I remember talking to John Collins from Stripe about this. He didn't really remember how many times they had the early days. So like, oh, it seemed like it was going pretty well. Um, and if you look at the numbers, it's actually not that big, actually, in the very early days. If you, then I talked to uh, Peter from Segment. And also similarly, he doesn't really remember. But then when you look at it, the numbers actually aren't that big. And of course, like, it's an incredible business now. And now it's sold for a few billion dollars to Twilio. I also talked to Figma, uh, Dylan from Figma, and if you look at those side of numbers, you know, in the very early days, they were also pretty small. Of course, now it's you know, a tremendously large company, right? But I think founders oftentimes forget how difficult the early days were. And for me, uh, that was a little bit demotivating because because you know I would ask them and they'd be like, oh, it seems like things were always going well for us. I don't know what's up with you. Uh, but then you know when you actually look at it, now we're you know a little bit past the hump and we look back and you could see you know sort of uh, every time uh, we do something, you know maybe it's uh, we launch the you know, Hacker News, maybe I go on a podcast or whatever else. There actually is a you know fairly noticeable spike actually, and then for the you know next two months thereafter, the actually baseline has actually increased. And so it's a lot of these things that eventually sort of build up over time, but there is no sort of, you know, overnight success or, you know, any aha moment where we find this one marketing trick that unlocks all leads or something like that. It really is pretty slow for a while until it's not slow and then you forget the slow part. There's this talk that I always loved that was given by Kathy Sierra, the Business of Software Conference. And she had this framework for making your users badass. Her whole idea was that if you want word of mouth growth, that comes from people talking to their friends. And people, when they talk to their friends about themselves and the stuff they're using, they want to like cast themselves in a positive light. So they like to brag about what they're up to. And so if you want them to talk about your product, your product has to make them into badasses so they can brag about themselves. Like somebody would be like, oh, Cortland, you know, you're able to make any hackers by yourself. You know, that's so cool. And I'd be like, yeah. And then I'll mention retool. I'll be like, I could do it because, you know, I've got all these cool internal tools that just make it way easier to manage and give me like way more leverage. Uh, so I'm curious how you think about word of mouth growth. Do you follow the same framework that she does? And, you know, what do you think are the, sort of the, the main levers for growing by word of mouth? Yeah, I think high level, yes. I think one interesting uh, nuance point is between sales and product or go-to-market, let's say, EPD. And I think most technical founders typically overweight EPD over go-to-market and most startups fail because of that is because they never do sales and never find customers or they charge too little money and whatever, they die, right? I do think, though, if you look at a lot of other companies in the sort of SaaS world, if you look at like Salesforce, for example, or Workday or, you know, sort of these big SaaS companies, a lot of them actually overweight go-to-market. And uh, uh, a lot of them just hire a lot of salespeople and they hire army salespeople and just you know sell you a product and uh, they flood the world with you know, Datadog or Salesforce or whatever else, right? Um, and I think the ideal point, at least for retool, is somewhere in the middle where I think sales is critically important to retool. There is no way we're going to be a $100 billion company without a sales tip. Sales is you know, incredibly important to us. And yet, we're not a sales-driven company, and uh, I'm fairly confident we'll never be a sales-driven company. And the reason is, uh, I think precisely to what you said, 
in order to get to our goal of being the way developers build software, if you sort of think about all the other you know, developer tools that have gotten quite big, let's say like Stripe, Twilio, whatever else, Stripe is not strong because they have a giant sales team. They also have a big sales team that you know is performing incredibly well, and as does Twilio. But Twilio is not Twilio because they have a big sales team giving demos to every developer in the world, right? In the end, you have to build a really great product that really generates a lot of word of mouth that friends tell each other about. And that is the only scalable, sustainable way of becoming uh, sort of uh, an iconic developer tools company. And so in our case, so I would agree with you. I think word of mouth is critically important to us. That said, sales is also important because you know, no one is ever going to put $10 million on a credit card, right? So uh, I think both are important, but EPD or word of mouth is what is really important. There's this cool almost arms race going on where you know there are these developer tools that are increasing productivity. And as a result, developers are kind of reacting to that by demanding even more. So it's almost like you know the, the snake bites the honey badger. The honey badger doesn't care because it's resistant, but the snake's even more poisonous and so on and so forth. You know, companies build all these tools so we can build software better and faster and cheaper than ever. And what happens is like we don't only just build software better and faster and cheaper, but now like you have all sorts of new people who decide, hey, you know, there's time enough to build software on the weekends because all these tools are so good. I'm gonna start doing it. And they have even more picky uh, demanding requests because they want it to be even faster. And so the cycle repeats and it's never quite done. And if you're trying to, you know, build retool into this thing that changes the way the software is built. I can't even imagine your vision for yeah, the future yeah, yeah. here. Like, is it going to be some sort of weird AI-driven something? I can't even imagine that you're thinking about that's going to make us way yeah, yeah. more productive at building code. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you mention this because when we first started selling Retool, we always thought the uh, value prop was we'll save you engineering time. You know that is true. We do save you engineering time. But as we started selling more and more Retool at, with more customers, we realized the real impact actually was on all the people in your company, because now they actually have tools for the job, right? You know, it's sort of hacking together, instead of hacking to the Excel spreadsheets or using tools that are often outdated, insecure. Uh, when you log an internal, at least when I log an internal tool, I generally think like, oh, that's probably not gonna work. You know, it's probably outdated or whatever else. Right? Yeah. I'm sure you probably have that experience too. Um, now they're high quality. Now all companies, all of our customers at least, have high quality internal software that they can trust and is robust and is secure and is performant. Um, and that actually dramatically unlocks the productivity of the whole company. It's not just saving developers time. It really is allowing the company to operate at a higher clock speed than before. And so for us, that, you know, is second order effect. I think that's what's really interesting is, you know, by sort of making building software easier, lowering the bar for building software, now a lot more software is built. And if you think about the world today, the way most companies drive more efficiency in their businesses typically is by software. You know, if you sort of look at Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola, you know, the manufacturing of, you know, the beverage is not really getting any substantially cheaper over time. You know, it's kind of fixed cost, kind of constant cost at this point in time, right? Um, but what Coca-Cola is doing in order to sort of drive profit margins up is by really focusing on software. And so, you know, to your point, I think software is going to be more and more and more and more, even more so than today, a larger part of the economy. And uh, I'm really sort of glad to be powering uh, a little bit of that. And, you know, eventually, one day, hopefully, you know, when all software is built and retooled, you know, if it's very far out, but, you know, that is the goal. <laughs> so, <laughs> far away. You've shared with me in our previous conversations just some, like, to me, mind-blowing facts. Like, I forget what the percentage of it, but you, like, what is the percentage of all software that's built internally versus externally? It's probably something like 50 or 60%. And it's very counterintuitive, but it's because um, if you think about your job or my job, right? You know, we're in Silicon Valley. Our job is to write software for other people. Most Silicon Valley companies, Stripe, even Airbnb, Uber, whatever else, they are writing code for others. They're selling their code. 
But if you look at most more traditional companies, like some of our customers, NBC, for example, Warner Bros., uh, Mercedes-Benz, Jaguar Land Rover, all these companies, they're not selling software. You know, Mercedes is definitely not selling software. They're selling cars, right? It just turns out that software is tremendously helpful in them doing their job. And if you look at most software engineers in the world, most of them actually aren't in Silicon Valley. Most of them work at these sort of more traditional companies where their jobs are to write software to power internal operations. Um, so I think the opportunity for us is quite big. I assume you didn't know that when you first came up with the idea for Retool. Uh, so no. I'm just curious, like, what are some things that might not be obvious to people who are thinking about like no code and low code uh, that weren't obvious to you? I think that one thing that is underappreciated is that the general workforce is getting much more technical. And so if you look at, let's say, people who are in non-engineering roles at Silicon Valley companies, let's say uh, PMs, people that work in operations, that work in support, marketing, sales, whatever else, a lot of them, especially the new grads now, have actually taken some sort of computer science class in college. Um, if they take a comp sci class, you know, they might not be, let's say, you know, the 10x developer who can you know, is really productive writing React or whatever else, or you know, dealing with Redux or you know, whatever else, but or you know, understand how Redux works, you know, under the hood. But they are able to go write SQL, and I think that has really fueled the rise of low code or no code in the past 10 months or so. Because now the, the sort of average knowledge of the knowledge worker has gotten higher. And I think most tools that we use assume less knowledge or assume that the knowledge sort of baseline has not changed. Or as Retool assumes that, hey, you, know, you probably know what SQL is. You know what a database is. You can write a little bit of uh, code. And uh, we've seen tremendous adoption because of that. I love that. It's not only the technology that changes, but it's actually people's familiarity with technology that changes. And that provides opportunities for you to build new apps and tools and websites that couldn't have existed in the past because like, the user base just wasn't ready for it. We're kind of at the end of our time, but most people listening in have not started anything. They haven't come up with an idea. They haven't run the line of code. They don't know what they want to do. What do you think they can take away from your journey, David, uh, to help them get started on their own? I think this is one thing I myself learned from YC and watching the startup school talks too, is uh, you should just get started. <laughs> this sort of risk is so low. Uh, especially if you start as a side project, right? If you start as a side project, you know, code in the weekends, code at nights, you know, see what happens. And then if something takes off uh, or, or you, you know, eventually find traction, even then quitting your job or you know, quitting school or whatever else to start something, it's actually just so low risk um, that you might as well try it and see what happens. Um, the worst case is you do, think as, you do something as a side project, it never takes off, and you still work at your job. You know, There's really no downside. Uh, so you might as well get started and see what happens. Get started, see what happens. Can you tell people uh, where they can go to find out more about what you're up to at Retool and where they can find you online? Yes, please. Retool.com is the place to be. David Chu, thanks a ton. Thank you. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and you want an easy way to support the podcast, you should leave a review for us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Probably the fastest way to get there if you're on a Mac is to visit ndhackers.com slash reviews. I really appreciate your support and I read pretty much all the reviews you leave over there. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, I will see you next time.